Hi, I'm Charlie Pickles, Managing Editor here at Unheard. In this documentary, Unheard contributor James Bloodworth travels to the English town of Rugeley to explore the changing nature of work in post-industrial communities. James finds that Rugeley's working-class residents are mourning more than just the loss of the old mining jobs. It's a familiar story across flyover communities. Please do check out our other Unheard documentaries and podcasts, and subscribe to receive future ones straight to your device. I hope you enjoy listening. In 1984, a Conservative Prime Minister went to war with the National Union of Mine Workers. At the time of that year's miners' strike, 171,000 miners were employed by Britain's state-owned coal industry. Within 10 years, almost 90% of these jobs would be gone. Most of the rest would go in the years that followed. Three decades later, some parts of the country have yet to recover. For many people, the old industrial jobs were dirty, dangerous and poorly paid. Yet for some, these jobs provided a sense of identity and a sense of self-respect. Working class organisations like trade unions and social clubs sprang up alongside industry. And these were a source of pride, but also an outlet for democratic expression. In recent times, many of Britain's cities have thrived. Yet the former industrial towns have been left behind. The new jobs might be safer, but they're often precarious and lack the institutional affiliations of the past. As a report by the think tank the Centre for Cities put it in 2015, many working class towns have replaced jobs in declining industries with low-skilled, routine occupations, swapping cotton mills for call centres and dockyards for distribution sheds. By 2018, 60% of British people living in poverty live in a household where someone is in work. In this documentary, I want to look at what this process can do to a town. Not only in terms of material things, like a person's income, but also what it can do to the self-esteem of an area and its sense of identity. Identity is an underappreciated side of the debate around left-behind communities. It's not simply that old industries provided jobs that were more stable and more long-term. They also gave people, particularly men, a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging. The dissipation of traditional masculine identities, particularly around work, has had a discombobulating effect on the lives of many men. Suicide among men has reached its highest levels since the early 80s. It seems to me then that this is about more than just nostalgia. It's a feeling one can only truly appreciate through having conversations, lots of conversations with the people who live and the people who work in areas that are still searching for a sense of their place in the world several decades after industry disappeared. Many of these people, and in particular men, feel lost. And when we focus only on the numbers of people in work, rather than the type of work that is replacing the old jobs, we can easily lose sight of this. To find out more, I wanted to travel to a town where some of these processes have changed the community radically over recent decades. I've come to Rugeley in the West Midlands, a town whose economy was once dominated by the Lee Hall Colliery down the road from here. 
I'm here to meet Alex Smith, a former pit mechanic and collier who still lives in Rugeley. How do you feel like the town has changed since the pit closed? The town's devastated. The town has never, ever recovered. If you have a reasonably well-paid job, you're travelling out the town. There's still people employed there and got good jobs, but the gulf between the good jobs and the bad jobs is huge, and the town has deteriorated. And I think the civic pride, it definitely took a tumble. When you used to be a coal miner, I mean, could you support a family on the kind of money people were, were earning down the pit? Yes, you could get a mortgage. Everybody did. I don't know anybody when I was a young man that rented a place. The demolition of Cooling Tower A in Rugeley followed the closure of the Lee Hall Colliery in 1991. Two decades later, Amazon came to Rugeley and is today the town's largest employer. One local paper declared at the time that following millions of pounds of investment, old mining communities are being transformed. When Amazon did arrive here, there was a great deal of excitement. Nobody really knew what Amazon was. And they went through a, a recruitment process. It sounded really good. You know, and you thought, well, they're making an effort. And I knew people who were glad to get a job there. I mean, they were over the moon. A friend of mine, he'd been unemployed for eight years. And he got a job. And I gave him a big hug. He was that pleased to get a job. But he didn't last there. You know, the, the honeymoon was very short. Alex told me that if he was a younger man, he wouldn't work at Amazon because of the way they treat people. He also told me something else, which I find interesting. People actually say, I'm only at Amazon. And yet in the past, they would have never said, I'm only at the pit, because you were a collier and you were proud of it. I don't think anybody has any pride working at Amazon because there's nothing to be proud of. You're working a zero-hour contract or week-to-week -week contract. You can be laid off for any reason. You're not allowed proper breaks. I mean, how inhuman is that? It's degrading. In 2016, I worked undercover at the Amazon warehouse in Rugeley for three weeks. On my first day, I was told that I should be under no illusions. This was going to be a temporary job. I would make friends with co-workers one day and the next day, they would be gone. Yet it wasn't hard to see why people either left or were sacked. I was given a disciplinary for simply taking a day off sick. I was regularly admonished by managers for things like toilet breaks. And one day, while working in the warehouse, I find a bottle of urine left inconspicuously on a shelf, put there by another order picker. A recent survey of 100 Amazon workers by the group Organize found that 74% of Amazon warehouse workers were afraid to go to the toilet because of productivity targets. More than half of those surveyed had suffered depression since starting the job, while eight workers had even considered suicide. Research by the GMB trade union found that ambulances were called out to the Amazon warehouse in Rugeley 115 times in just three years. You have to become a commuter to get good employment. That's what a local councillor told me while I was living in Rugeley. To be socially mobile, you have to move away. Away from your family, away from your friends, and away from your neighbours. This isn't something 
that everyone wants to do. Yet because of our fixation with social mobility, we don't provide good jobs in towns like Rugeley. Instead, we encourage people to move away. I'm in Westminster, outside the Houses of Parliament. I've come here to chat with the MP for Dagenham, John Cruddus. I've come to talk to him about work and about how, in towns like Rugeley, we have transitioned from some of the old industrial jobs to some of the poorly paid, precarious jobs of the present day. One of the dominant issues in the country, which has never been recognised apart from the last year or two in politics, has been the changing character of work, right? Not just about deindustrialisation or the end of jobs, but the changing nature of work and that sense of, at times, borderline humiliation, very frustrating anger and the moral challenge that poses to us as citizens, as public policymakers, as politicians, to push back against this and the lack of political diagnosis and change in terms of the political system offering up a sense of hope to overcome this stuff. Um, I'll give you an example. I was on a picket line just the other week with Tesco's workers that were paid one thirty an hour less than the one in Thurrock in a distribution centre just up the road. And I'd been in this distribution centre and you could literally see people having technological adaptions strapped to their bodies and they were becoming, you know, dehumanised in this production process, right? Now, that should be front and centre in the political debate. The dehumanisation that John Cruddus talks about feels a long way from the life that Alex Smith led working in the Lee Hall Colliery, even if the jobs of today are far safer. This is one of the paradoxes in the debate around contemporary work. Health and safety has progressed enormously since the heyday of British industry, as has liberal equality. Women are no longer locked out of certain jobs because of their gender, at least not in the sense that they were in the past. But with the disappearance of the old jobs, something else has been lost too. And this can be hard to comprehend for those not living in towns like Rugeley. Alex Smith again. I was a craftsman. I fixed things. And strictly speaking, we weren't allowed to uh, mine. But we did because we helped each other. That's, that's always the essence of mining. We all helped each other. Do you think that camaraderie, that solidarity, I suppose, was that an intrinsic part of life in the pit? It certainly was. In any occasion there was a, an emergency, a disaster or anything, there has never been an instance where a miner did not go to the aid of a strucken miner. They always went to help you. That was your duty. Every miner you ever speak to will tell you the same. If you were given the chance to go back, you'd go back tomorrow. We used to love it. The harder it was, the better we, we did. We loved it. I don't know anybody that wouldn't want to go back. But Claire Ainsley challenges the idea that work has deteriorated for all low-income workers. She also warns against nostalgia for a supposedly golden era of good jobs and stable communities. Looking at the data of what people said about their jobs, 
a lot of people who were on sort of lower to middle incomes actually said that they had more positive job attributes than they did in the past. So I don't think it's as clear cut as we might think. I also think there is a danger in being nostalgic about the industrial jobs of the past. I mean, my granddad was a miner. I'm glad my son is not going to be a miner, not because I don't feel hugely proud of what my granddad did and stood for, but they were dangerous jobs at times. It's also noticeable that Claire does mention pride, something hardly synonymous with work in the Amazon warehouse I worked in. John Cruddus argues that the lack of political focus on the gulf between good and bad jobs is partly due to the ubiquity of fashionable theories around automation. An influential section of the left is today focused on a supposedly workless future, arguably at the expense of some of the more prosaic day-to-day struggles for dignified work. John Cruddus. There is another conversation on the left my part of the pitch, if you want, which which celebrates the end of work, right? Which imagines there's a post-work nirvana, which serves to reinforce that sense of us being unable to comprehend and speak to the lives that people actually live rather than this imagined futurology of some post-work universal basic income funded nirvana, which seems to me to be a total no-go. Sounds more like Arthur C. Clarke than it does Karl Marx, you know what I mean? Do you think there's really a kind of conservatism underlying that in that nothing can really change until the revolution, so there's no point dealing with some of the boring stuff today? I totally agree. There is a sense that those people who, in the traditional labour sense of trying to confront the degradation of work, are somehow living in an old-fashioned world, just like with under new labour, fast forward to under the current labour leadership, at times it appears that this is seen as an old-fashioned, antiquated form of political activity. Well, how does that help people like in my constituency or Rootley or whatever who feel every day is a struggle, wages are flatlined for 15 years, the quality of work is in decline, there is a sense that this stuff is never talked about and it's not going to be talked about if the Labour Party has moved away from this space and is playing on a different part of the pitch. In contrast to the mainstream Liberal left, author and commentator David Goodhart argues that it was Labour's attitude towards immigration which helped to create the current precarity at the low end of the economy. The Labour Party was protected to reduce competition in the labour market Um, and through its policy in 2004 of saying, you know, bring it on Eastern Europeans, it it, it increased competition in the labour market. I mean, it did exactly the opposite of what it exists to do. I mean, the fact that one third of employees, production workers in the food manufacturing sector, our biggest manufacturing sector by employment, uh, are people from Eastern Europe. And you've never, uh, have you ever heard anybody in the Labour Party suggesting this might not be a particularly good thing? No. What's clear from my time in Rugeley is that the migrant workforce David Goodhart describes isn't always benefiting from the situation any more than people like Alex Smith. I'm here outside Amazon's vast distribution centre, which sits next to the giant grey cooling towers of the decommissioned power station, a symbol of the town's vanished industrial past. I worked here at Amazon for a short period of time in 2016, and some of the things I saw whilst working here appalled me. So I've come back to Rugeley to talk to some of my former Amazon co-workers. How does it compare like working here to working in Romania? Why did you come here to work there, I suppose. The salary is better than Romania, that's why. But the conditions in the last time, it's like slavery, modern slavery, I call it. You mentioned like health health issues of staff members there. 
yeah, a lot of people get ill. You know, back problem is the <laughs> the main problem there. You know, you have back pain because you lift heavy items. You know, you must move fast and you, you don't respect the training for safety. You know, when they need you to do faster the job. Do you think that um, that the managers treat Romanian staff differently? Yeah, this is the main problem. I think uh, we are uh, treating different. Uh, different. Uh, this Wednesday was released only Romanians, uh, five or six person. And released is is sacked, right? Yeah, you was fired. Uh, I think they, there is a, a big pressure and a big grasses there. Yeah. Uh, now it's the same with the permanent contract. They want to get rid of people who are having permanent contract and uh, to hire a temporary contract. To fire them, it's uh, easy to fire them because they find uh, a simple reason, you know, to fire them. The policy Amazon is to rule the people, you know. It's uh, like a big, uh, huge <laughs> human wash machine there, yeah. Is it possible to feel valued or have pride in a workplace that feels like a big human washing machine? Here's David Goodhart on the sense of meaning manual jobs once provided. We don't want to over-romanticise the skilled jobs of the industrial era, but I think they were very important in giving perhaps particularly men uh, a sense of status and, and protection in a way. The thing about a lot of those skilled industrial jobs is that you didn't necessarily need a high level of cognitive ability to do them, although you may have had a high level of cognitive ability, um, what you did need was quite a high level of experience. You know, you could do that job really well and you couldn't be replaced. I believe that we need to strengthen trade unions and toughen up employment law around things like zero-hour contracts. Even The Economist magazine is now saying that organised labour has too little bargaining power in Britain. The state should also take a more active role in regenerating communities like Rugeley. It's wildly unrealistic to expect people to simply evacuate a town, or as Norman Tebbit notoriously phrased it, to get on your bike, simply because the market can no longer extract enough profit from an area. Local authorities are already spending taxpayers' money enticing Amazon to their areas. The Welsh Government constructed a purpose-built road for Amazon's warehouse in Swansea to the tune of £4.9 million. Amazon, the world's largest multinational, headed by the world's richest man, received an additional £8.8 million in the form of regional selective assistance grants for the cost of their warehouse. John Crudus is sceptical of big companies like Amazon threatening to relocate. I asked John, if the government took a harder line with big corporations, would they simply leave the UK? I think it's an absolute bluff. I think it's an absolute bluff. And it's almost like they blow at us and we fall over, you know? I mean, look, they're hoovering up billions in corporate money. They're not paying any tax. They're abusing and degrading in any human way their employees, and we're not doing anything about it. Nor even are we having a conversation about how we can push back and confront this. Indeed, we're off with the fairies talking about post-work environments and industrialised welfare and universal income, and we, are, we have lost our historic duty, indeed our obligation, to get stuck in and stand up and fight for those who have no voice in this. Because if that voicelessness will go somewhere else and it will find voice in much more visceral 
form of extreme political expression if we're not careful. Julian Jessup is a chief economist at the Institute for Economic Affairs. And in contrast to the more statist drift of politics on both the left and the right, he warns against the government taking action against companies like Amazon. There's a reason why they're offering jobs on those terms in the first place. I mean, that those are the ones that are commercially viable for that company to offer. Um, if they're restricted to offering you know, 36 hour weeks and that was the only form of employment, then, then yes, those jobs might be more secure for those people who take them. But there'd be fewer of those jobs. Uh, and I think we have to look at the interests of, of, of everybody, not just the insiders who would be protected by having existing conditions strengthened. To some extent, Julian frames the question as a binary one of workers' rights for a minority versus cheap consumer goods for the majority. Well, it's a fact of life at the moment. As we know, the retail sector is extremely competitive. So competition is basically driving down costs. Now, I appreciate that is tough on many of the workers in the sector, but it also has benefits. It means that, you know, as consumers, we're all um, benefiting from lower prices and more choice than we would otherwise have got. Uh, and frankly, if you had to force me to choose between the interests of consumers as a whole or, or some workers, I'm afraid I have to go with consumers. The alternative is that if you overprotect workers, then consumers end up paying higher prices than they need to. But also there'll be fewer people in employment. And I simply don't see how that can be in the best interest even of the employees themselves. Unheard's US editor Henry Olson has written about American Rust Belt towns, the stateside equivalent to places like Rugeley. There was a big swing in these towns to Donald Trump during the 2016 presidential election. A typical Rust Belt economy once benefited from a booming manufacturing industry. Today, it's characterised by abandoned factories, uh, cars that are rusted and out of date, uh, boarded up shops in a decrepit main street and ill-camped uh, open spaces because there once were houses there or once were buildings there and nothing has come back to replace it. Henry recently spent some time in Pennsylvania in a place called Levittown. Levittown managed to dodge economic and social collapse, which for many towns followed after the large manufacturers packed up and went overseas. Henry has written about what Levittown has done to survive. One thing that came out of your, your essay was you talked about the kind of moral character of Levittown. That's partly the reason why Levittown got back on its feet. I was actually surprised when I found my interviews continually coming back to pride in the people rather than looking at causes or uh, specific actions. Uh, one thing I would say that Levittown had and still has is an uh, actual sense of community, that people think of themselves as Levittowners. That's something that a government can foster, that sort of looking to themselves for support or looking to institutions for support. That would be a way of re-engaging a moral character that might have declined elsewhere. Do you think Levittown offers a wider lesson to towns like Rugeley? I think uh, the lesson in Levittown is not to look at the past and uh, not to try and stake all of your hopes on bringing back the, a modern version of the old manufacturer. Uh, but I think you have to have uh, an understanding that the best thing to do for your people is to educate them and ask them to leave, give them the tools that they can use to prosper, but understand it may not be in the town they grew up in. Is there any country that's responded to this challenge effectively? 
You know, the Germans and the Swiss have excellent vocational systems, and I don't think it's an accident that in the German case, uh, they avoided uh, the sort of wide-scale uprising uh, politically that was roiling many other countries. I spoke to Jeremy Cliff, Berlin bureau chief for The Economist, about how Germany has managed to avoid the post-industrial slump faced by so many British and American towns. Part of it, Jeremy argues, is a wider cultural attitude which stresses the importance of a more systematic approach to production. The German strength in this area is very culturally rooted. So you don't need to spend that long in Germany to realise that people take very seriously processes and making things. You know, it's bound up in our our British stereotypes of the rule-obsessed Germans, but it really does mark everyday life. It's institutions like the apprenticeship system, which every British government says they want to emulate and want to learn from Germany on, but which never really seems to materialise in Britain with the sort of thoroughness and the systematic nature that it has in Germany. You know, an apprenticeship in Germany really counts for something. It's, it's not just a way of rebranding cheap work. It is a training process that is meant to equip a worker for a lifetime of quite autonomous labour in a factory taking responsibility for manufacturing processes. Jeremy argues that decentralisation is another factor, meaning that policies in Germany are well-informed and tailor-made for industrial regions. This is something we in Britain could learn a great deal from. We are a spectacularly centralised country, you know, ludicrously so seen from Germany. And power is a long way in Britain from a lot of the industrial or former industrial areas that could do with some of Germany's success in in these industrial questions. You know, it works. Our system works very well for London with its services based economy. It doesn't work so well for, for example, the North East or parts of the Midlands. What we're looking at here are two different responses to decline. In the US, the emphasis is on personal responsibility. By contrast, German society operates on the basis of a much more active state. I'm more sympathetic to the German model, where the quality of work seems to be valued just as highly as the number of jobs created. After all, good work is incredibly important, and some of the shocking statistics we hear around male rates of depression and suicide are, I would argue, partly related to the loss of identity that continues to affect many in the transition from an industrial to a service economy. This is not about everyone doing a job that they love. There will always be boring and laborious work. Nor is it about excluding women from the picture in some attempt to reclaim the place of traditional masculinity at the top of the pecking order. But it's a mistake to neglect the importance of dignified labour not least because, for better or for worse, work gives people a sense of identity and a sense of purpose. And identity matters. It's a psychological filter through which we interpret the world. Most career-oriented middle-class professionals would, I think, recognise this. It's a mistake, though, to assume that identity is any less important for working-class people. When the invisible power of the market imposes dramatic change on a working-class town like Rugeley, as it has done with countless towns across Britain, Europe and the United States, it's easy to shrug one's shoulders and lament local people for their failure to embrace the onward march of progress. Yet by leaving people behind like this, we do them a disservice based on little more than where they grew up. 
Other societies seem to have managed the transition away from industry better than we have here in Britain. This is, of course, a moral argument and is therefore unlikely to convince everyone. So I would also stress the practical importance of dealing with this. The more we neglect towns like Rugeley, and the more we write working class people off more generally, the easier it will be for demagogues to stand on platforms offering simple solutions, even if the remedies they offer are ugly, cynical and violent.